We start today, though, with the story that has shocked and saddened British Columbia and the whole country this week. Is the stabbing death of RCMP Constable Shaylin Yang and where we're going in the investigation here on this. This brave young police officer laid down her life this week. A member of the RCMP's mental health team stabbed to death while checking on a man living in a tent in a Burnaby Park. The charge in this case now, 37-year-old Jong Wong Ham has been charged with first-degree murder in this case. He had a previous criminal record for assault and resisting police. Did Constable Yang know about this man's background when she was sent there to check on him without a backup, without a partner, without another police officer with her? He had been wanted on a, a warrant for his arrest after he had failed to show up for a court appearance on September 14th. Failed to show up for another one a couple of days later. So there was an arrest warrant out for him. Did Constable Net Yang know about that? Does not appear that she did. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Cash Heed, former chief of the West Vancouver Police Department, BC's former solicitor general, newly elected Richmond city councillor. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, first of all, uh, Councillor, we saw you're a former police officer. I, I know how this hits home with law enforcement when a member lays down her life like this in the line of duty. And we saw that very solemn procession and a lot of emotion from police officers yesterday. Can you just briefly comment on that, like how this hits home for law enforcement when this happens? Well, it's, there's going to be a lot of emotions expressed, not only from our law enforcement community, but certainly the community at large. Just look at what has occurred across Canada. We've had five officers in the last five weeks lose their life here in Canada, sadly, by people that have these mental disorder issues that we need to deal with. We need to make sure that we're able to get them out of the public realm and put them somewhere where they can be supported and treated. This is a sad set of circumstances, Mike, and this is the tipping point in my opinion, of why we need substantial change in policy here in British Columbia and elsewhere around Canada. What do you think should be top of the to-do list in that regard? Accountability systems. We need to bring in accountability. We need to make sure that we're continually assessing what is going on, the effectiveness and the efficiencies in our systems. I brought in a system when I was with the Vancouver Police Department called the ComStat system, which was made famous by Bill Bratton, where, in fact, you looked at the success and failures of your programs, of the amount of money you're spending on them, and if they're failing, what you can do to fix them. And, and part of that was implementing new creative ideas to suppress, intervene, and prevent problems that are affecting our communities. Okay, let's talk a little bit about this investigation here and the arrest of John Wan Ham, charged with first-degree murder in, in this case. Now, he had a record for assault, previous allegations, and had also been accused of resisting arrest, like resisting police. Do you think, is it clear to you that Constable Yang, when she was dispatched to deal with this man, it, it appears she did not know that. She probably didn't know who this guy was, didn't know his record, didn't know his record for assault and resisting police. Otherwise, she wouldn't have gone there by herself. Would you agree? 
I absolutely would agree with you on that, Mike, because those are the people, when they've had a history with dealing with the police, have shown some aggressiveness. You go there with the numbers that are required to deal with them, regardless of the fact that they may have some other uh, mental disorder that needs to be treated. The, The officer safety is paramount here. And what I'm starting to believe is there was other interactions in that location previously with police. Now, we'll see what happens after the management review is completed to find out when in fact and if this was true and we need to make sure that the policies and procedures are there to protect our officers and others when they're responding to these incidents. Yeah we had some uh, comments this week from Sergeant Timothy Parati. he's with the integrated homicide investigation team that's investigating this uh, this case and he was asked whether Constable Yang knew who this man was whether she knew that there was an arrest warrant out for him. And she, he said he, he didn't really comment specifically on that, but she, he said that police officers are often called to assist a, a, city, a, a city official with a person in an encampment, which was the case here. And he, but he said, we, all, we all don't always know who that person is. She was not there to execute the warrant, the arrest warrant to this man. I think that's pretty clear. She didn't know who this guy was. It would appear. It, appear, it appears so. Uh, certainly yeah. there are dynamic situations that police officers are involved in each and every shift, and they've got to be able to prepare themselves for that. And all appearances so far, based on my expertise, she did not know she was dealing with a dangerous offender. Yeah, and if she had known, like, what would have been... Typically, when you know who you're dealing with, like, if you're going to make an arrest of someone or you're going to deal with someone who's got a, a, a violent record... There's an arrest warrant outstanding. Is there like a threat assessment done before police would interact with someone like that? Well, it depends, but it, uh, what you would do, it depends on the situation. In this situation, if, in fact, you had some intel regarding who this person was, the person would have been checked in the system, the system would have indicated previous behavior, and you would have approached the situation in a different way. There just would not have been or should not have been one officer there if you had that intelligence before going there. There would be a complement of officers to control the situation, and the approach to that subject may be a bit different. Yeah, I mean, this is what makes this so tragic, and these all of these points we're discussing will be part of the investigation that's that's underway here. Speaking to Cash Heed, Richmond City Councilor, former West Van Police Chief. Okay, what about when there's an arrest warrant outstanding for someone? You know, in this case, this is a, this guy had a, a not showing up for a court date, so there was an arrest warrant outstanding for him. How do police go about finding these guys? Like, is there a dedicated police unit out there looking for people if there's an arrest warrant out for them? Well, there are specific units. We have to remember there's thousands and thousands of arrest warrants out for people that didn't comply with their court order or uh, they were convicted and didn't show up for their sentencing. What I did is when I looked at how we had to deal with crime in a different way in Southeast Vancouver under the ComStat system where we're continually monitoring our effectiveness, I started up a pilot program with a fugitive squad in Vancouver. And what we did, Mike, was we took the top 100 that were operating in Southeast Vancouver, applied current resources, I didn't need new resources to do this, immediately put them out. We went after chronic offenders, we went after violent offenders, we went after people that were, uh, did not show up for their court appearance. 
But you have to use the intel. You have to use the chronic offender program, which we just set up in Vancouver to deal with it. You have to use the gang intel network to find out what's going on. This is all part of bringing people together, bringing our resources together to deal with these people. We need to get these people that are defying court orders, that have arrest warrants out for them, off of our system. At the same time, Mike, we strategically work with Crown prosecutors to ensure that they remain in custody or if, in fact, they were released, we were notified. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about whether police have adequate resources to find people that are that are wanted in these situations before these type of tragedies occur you know this reminds me a little bit too of the, the and we talked about this on earlier shows <clears throat> the stabbings the deadly stabbings we saw in september in saskatchewan and the manhunt for miles sanderson who was one of the suspects in those mass stabbings 11 people stabbed and there this guy would have been wanted by the police too uh when he was out there and committed the committed these crimes Let me play a clip here for you from the federal public safety minister, Marco Mendicino. This is going back to last month and where he talks about do the police have the resources they need to find people when they're out there and being searched for an arrest warrant before these type of tragedies can occur. Here's the federal minister. I think it's incredibly important that... um that when somebody's at large and there's a warrant for their arrest and um, you know they have an extensive uh, criminal background that all the resources are there to be able to apprehend that person as quickly as possible and we do need to take a very uh, careful look as to what occurred in the situation and when and as i said we need to uh, to be very transparent about that review i'm sure you would agree with him cash that police need those resources are the resources there No, they're not there. And I would agree with them, but they need to be strategically deployed. What I would not agree with them is it appears this is just a lot of discussion, a lot of talk. What I did when I had the accountability, I put it into action. We've tried this before, Mike. We know fugitive squads work. We know we can go after high-profile chronic offenders, high-profile gang members, all of that. You know, we just had a uh, top uh, you know, the list of people and offering $250,000 reward. But we should be tracking them down. We should be hunting them down. The U.S. has a separate federal agency, the U.S. Marshal Service, that goes out and tracks yeah. down these people. We need this here in Canada. We just can't wait for it. We need to start it now. All right. Welcome back as we continue talking about the death of RCMP Constable Shaylin Yang, a charge of first-degree murder now laid in the case. My guest is Cash Heed, Richmond City Councillor. Let's go to your phone calls here, Tim in Abbotsford. Hi, Tim. Go ahead. Yeah. Good morning, gentlemen. My my concern is we have to, we seem to have commissions all the time about policing and uh, in regards to what they do and how they handle things. Why don't we have a commission on the Crown prosecutors and names of those people that are letting those people out within twenty four hours and sometimes less. We don't seem to have that accountability. We were, we're pushing against the police. We're, like I said, we're doing inquiries. What about the Crown Council? How come they're not accountable? Cash, your thoughts? Quickly, we've done judicial reviews over the years, and we've had several good recommendations. The problem with these inquiries and reviews, those recommendations aren't binding. It's at the behest of the current government to put them in place. But I can tell you right now, Mike, I've never seen such a lackluster policy in our provincial government on law and order than I've seen right now. Over the decades, when you look at it, when you examine it, and I have, this is so lackluster. And so Tim's comment is right. We need accountability built within the system. 
system. What, what do you think the province can do or should do? Should do right now in the prosecution is have strategic prosecution on these individuals, where in fact the examples that were given are people continue to release. Imagine using a community court model, which is an alternative court model for a violent offender. You don't do that. It was never meant to be. We need to get this back into place. So when you're talking to the premier designate, we need policies on law and order because we are the victims of the behavior of these people. Star 9898 is the number to call toll-free on your cell. Andrew and Kamloops. Hi, Andrew. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Good morning. Um, I'm not an expert or anything like that, but I hear a lot of people even up here saying, you know, we need to send more and more people to prison. I like to think I'm friends with one of the prison guards in town, and he told me some horrific things that he has to consistently go through. You know, people popping out eyeballs, people killing themselves regularly. And I really hope that the answer to the problem isn't just throw people in prison because we really need to support the prison guards and that whole system because they can't handle stuff like that. Okay, thank you for that. Well, I mean, if people are mentally ill, if they're addicted to, you know, really brutal and damaging drugs like crystal meth, cash, what, what is it? And you throw someone like that in a prison cell, what does it accomplish? Well, we default to the uh, penal system for these people. We don't have anywhere else to put them. So when they're in front of a judge, mm. the judge can only uh, sentence them to this. That's why I've been an advocate for uh, reopening these institutions to deal with these people. And, and you're right. Why should we have the prison guards that are there to uh, guard prisoners, criminals, look after the uh, mentally ill? Yeah, and when it comes to like reopening a large institution like Riverview, uh, one of the reasons it was closed in the first place was there were thoughts that you know people were being abused in these big institutions, human rights were not being respected, of people in, inside. But even people like David Eby, uh, the incoming premier, has talked about the need to possibly force people into treatment. Well, I mean, is that the answer? Involuntary treatment. Go ahead. Well, treatment is a little bit of a different approach here. We've got to remember most of these people are poly. Most of the people that are severely drug addicted also have mental health issues, vice versa. And that's the issue we need to deal with. Yes, the treatment of these people, the institutionalization, is very, very important to get ahead of this problem. Cash, thank you for coming on today. Pleasure. All right. Let's talk food inflation now. Have you noticed when you go to the grocery store now, you get that shock at the cash register very often. It's happened to be just earlier this week too. I mean, you get to the you get to the cash register, you use a small number of items like what? Really? I mean, this is how much all this costs. I've hardly bought anything. This is really really adding up. Now, you take a look at the inflation rate for food in Canada. It is soaring 11.4% was the figure over last month of the inflation rate. This is a surge in food prices we have not seen in about 40 years in Canada at this rate. The food inflation rate is running higher than the general inflation rate. It's led to charges of profiteering and greed by the big grocery store chains. Some grocery stores responding to the criticism, Loblaws, the chain of companies, the largest grocery store chain in, in Canada, they announced a, a price freeze on some on some items, some staple items in their stores, waiting to see if other chains will follow suit on that. It's a big issue in the House of Commons right now. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh calling for help for Canadians who are getting uh, slammed with these high food prices. 
Here's what Jug, here's what Singh had to say about it. Have a listen. We're seeing prices go up when it comes to food. We're seeing profits go up uh, in this sector, and we're not seeing the prices come down. It is clear to us that there is corporate greed contributing to inflation. Broadly speaking, enough is enough. Let's get to the bottom of it and let's stop it. Okay, corporate greed. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Peter Julian, NDP MP, New West Burnaby. Very pleased to welcome him back. Peter, thanks for coming on today. Good to be with you, mate. Okay, what are you hearing from your constituents about food prices? Uh, folks are really struggling. They're struggling to, to put food on the table. Uh, they're struggling to keep a roof over their head, too, as well. And when the grocery chains announced these uh, record profits, increase in profits this year, uh, increased dividends, increased executive bonuses, uh, it, it just rubs everybody the wrong way. The, the reality is what we're experiencing is greedflation, where, yes, prices are up, but what the companies are doing is inflating the prices to increase their bottom line, uh, to increase their dividends, bonuses, and their profits, and that's just wrong. And uh, as you as you know, this week the NDP presented uh, a motion that um, that passed unanimously, and it called on a yeah. number of things, including getting the government, getting the Competition Bureau to, to step up on behalf of Canadians, so that this kind of collusion to raise prices stops. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's interesting to see all the political parties on the same page. You don't often see a unanimous vote in the House of Commons. Can you tell me a little bit more about that motion? What what did it call for? It called for the, the government to, to step up. It, it called for the Competition Act to be strengthened. Uh, that What we also have is uh, Alistair McGregor, the NDP MP for Cowich and Malahat Langford on the island, actually got this started. They're, they're investigating high food prices at the Agriculture Committee, so reinforcing that, closing the loopholes that exist in the income tax system. We've got CEOs and big corporations that avoided... $30 billion in taxes last year. And the reality is, if, if you and I owe money on taxes, we have to pay uh, to have the ultra-rich get uh, get away scot-free with $30 billion that they can take overseas is simply wrong. And ensuring uh, as well that that uh, Canadian families are taken care of so that the, the, these companies are curtailed in their greedflation, in their profiteering from what is a, a very dire period for so many Canadian families. Okay, I'm sure if one of the CEOs of these big grocery store chains was here right now, they would say that this is not greedflation. This is not... Are you, are you in the House of Commons dining room or something? Is that where you are, Peter? I, I'm in the lobby, so uh, I apologize <laughs> okay. for, the, for the noise. I'm just outside the house. Uh, I have to go back in shortly. Yeah, that's okay. I, you know, that's, that's, life, uh, that's life on the Parliament Hill. Um, yeah, they would say, look, you know, we've got cost pressures, too. I mean, there are supply chain challenges. There is inflation in their input costs. So this is not this is not greed. This is not profiteering. Like, where is the evidence that it's profiteering? Uh, when you see increased profits, when you see increased dividends, when you see increased executive bonuses, it's very difficult for those same chains to say, oh, gosh, you know, it's just because of supply, uh, supply chain issues. Uh, and the reality is they're bragging about all of those increases in executive bonuses and dividends, at the same time telling the Canadian public we have no control over this. It, it's, it's simply false. And, and the reality is when the NDP presented its motion initially, the Conservatives and the Liberals were opposed. Uh, there was public reaction over the course of the Thanksgiving week uh, because of the high food prices. And the, and the same grocery chain, uh, the big grocery CEOs who were saying, no, no, we have no control over prices, announced uh. the day of the vote 
that they were going to freeze prices on staples, not just Loblaws, Metro and, uh, and uh, Empire announced okay. the same thing. So all yeah. of a sudden they have control over prices when they didn't uh, before the NDP presented its motion. Oh, okay. So these chains that you just mentioned with the price freeze, like what, what items are subject to the price freeze in these chains? Uh, they've been saying that their staple goods are not going to raise uh, prices anymore. Now, the reality is, and the criticism that they've received back is, well, you already raised the prices. Now you're locking in uh, those profits. But uh, uh, the reality is, for them to say we're freezing prices show they do have control over prices. The fact that uh, they've been bragging about record dividends and CEO bonuses also show that Jagmeet Singh was right to, to call them out on this. And, and hopefully uh, what we will get, because the motion directs the government to introduce tougher anti-competition uh, legislation, competition legislation that ensures uh, that consumers are, are taken care of, uh, we are going to continue to pressure the government to do that in the coming months. <clears throat> Speaking of Peter Julian, NDP MP, New Westminster Burnaby from the lobby of the House of Commons in Ottawa. Let's have a listen to your party leader, Jagmeet Singh, uh, calling for action from government on, on high food prices. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. If it becomes clear that this is strictly corporate greed and the greed of CEOs driving up the cost of food, then that, that merits a, a very firm action. We've called for things like a windfall tax. Okay, a windfall tax. How would that work, Peter Julian? Well, a windfall tax is, is the kind of thing we did actually in the Second World War. We're living through a crisis when people were really struggling, and to avoid companies actually profiteering from that, there were a number of measures that were put into place. So it's a time-tested uh, uh, action by government that ensures that profiteering doesn't take place on the backs of of regular Canadian families. And the, and the windfall tax is because of these record profits that the companies are bragging about. This is a time of real difficulty. So many families are struggling to put food on the table, and you've got companies bragging about, hey, record profits, record CEO bonuses, record dividends. And so the windfall tax allows that money to go back to, to taking care of regular families. And, and certainly, as you know, Mike, the, the NDP's focus uh, Jagmeet Singh's focus over the last few months has been putting in place uh, uh, dental care and supports for families, ensuring uh, doubling the GP, uh, GT, GST credits so that families can have the wherewithal to put food on the table and also ensuring that renters get, uh, get additional supports. Uh, when you have a windfall tax, you can afford to do more things to help regular Canadian families and seniors and students, people with disabilities, people that are struggling right now. Okay, so if you brought in a windfall tax on these big grocery store chains, then the money would it would it would just go into general revenue to pay for the programs you just discussed, or would it be earmarked for to be redistributed to Canadians, give give money directly back to Canadians who are being hit by these high prices? Like how what would you do with the money from the tax specifically? Uh, well, we we are not in government, but we pressure the government effectively, as we saw during COVID, and and we're seeing now. And and we have we believe that Canadian families need more supports, more supports for housing, more supports for the healthcare system that is because of federal government cutbacks uh, deteriorating. So it does go into general revenue. That's true, but it also uh, belies this myth that uh, when we give away thirty billion dollars a year to the ultra rich to take off to offshore tax havens. 
that we don't have the resources to take care of people. We do. We just need to be much more effective about ensuring that, that wealthy CEOs pay their fair share. And as a result of that, we can provide more supports to families and seniors and students and people with disabilities and on all Canadians. I'll let you get back to work. Thank you for taking the time. Always a pleasure. Good to speak with you. All right, let's talk about this unusual NDP leadership saga here now. David Eby, now officially the winner of the contest. He becomes the NDP leader. He will be the next premier of British Columbia, but only after the party disqualified his only opponent, Anjali Apaterai. This is a story we've covered closely here for you on the show I've talked to uh, both of those contestants uh, on the show in the past. Have a listen to Anjali Potterai here on an earlier show. Now, remember, she was accused of coordinating with outside groups here to sign up party members to vote for her, notably members of the Green Party. She was accused of that. Also coordinating with outside environmental groups like Dogwood, B.C., I asked her about that in an earlier show, all these party members she was signing up in controversial fashion. Here's what she told me. When people switch parties to become a member of of a different party, I see that as a good thing. And I am I'm very happy that there that my campaign and my candidacy has drawn a lot of people who vote green back to the NDP. She thinks it was a good thing. The party did not see it necessarily as a good thing at all. She has been disqualified from the race. David Eby is the winner. Now, not everyone in the NDP is happy about the way this was handled. Have a listen to this. This is former NDP cabinet minister Harry Lally writing in a a newly written op-ed. He writes, if Dave Barrett was alive today and saw how how a young female Asian leadership hopeful was being treated by the BC NDP in an unjust, contemptuous, and undemocratic fashion. He would hang his head in shame. Harry Lally, he joins me now. Harry, thank you for coming on, man. Good to be here again. Okay, Harry, this is quite a a rip-roaring editorial you've written on this. Can you tell me, why do you feel that the NDP treated Anjali unfairly. Why, why do you feel that way? You know, for all of the, uh, the recent BC NDPs talk about uh, bringing in new people, young people, people from different parties to grow the, uh, the, the universe for the NDP, this is just basically is a big slap in the face of all of that in terms of now pushing out this young woman, uh, you know, who has some fresh ideas is trying to come in. The NDP did this because David Eby was the, the only one that was going to be running, no challengers. Uh, he signed up a few thousand members, I understand, and he thought he was a complete shoe-in. So Anjali uh, Apaterai puts her name in, and she wasn't seen as much of a threat until all of the membership started coming in. And then they were basically thinking, oh, my God, maybe David Eby might not be able to win, and we might have a real uh, contest for leadership. And this is where they actually blew their top and actually used a sledgehammer approach in, in order to kill a fly rather than actually trying to use a fly swatter. Okay. And it's just disgusting is, is the word. And this is how people that I'm talking to around the province 
are saying uh, this is so undemocratic and really sort of an, uh, an autocratic way to try to push somebody out. Okay, so you think this was what, the party brass or some what, some sort of old boys club in the NDP? They they decide we've got to protect our guy here. So this was all about protecting EB. Is that what you think? Well, absolutely. It's all about yeah. the old guard. I mean, basically, if, if somebody has an some new, fresh ideas that are different from theirs, they automatically feel threatened by it. Yeah. And they're threatened by it because bringing in new people means that maybe their own power base is, is going to be uh, diluted and they might be turfed thir- out of power in terms of the executive uh, and, and all of the positions that, that they are in the NDP. And what you see right now is uh, is it rather than actually saying we're going to judge both candidates by by the, the same rules, because the USW, my former uh, union, IWA, uh, uh, you know, uh, steelworkers, uh, they were involved in terms of actually signing up members in a similar fashion that uh, uh, Ms. Apoderai is being accused of. But one is being turfed out. The other one, they're saying, we're not even going to have an investigation. This is very hypocritical. You've got David Eby now, who is the, going to be the new leader, is going out there trying to be the good guy, trying to say we're going to win these people, we've got to get them back on board that Anthony had signed up. And yet there's John Horgan, uh, you know, with his fake rage, going out and name-calling with people. You have the good guy and the bad guy approach. Because he's going to be gone. Horgan's going to be gone. So if he gets any feedback that's negative, that's okay. As long as it's not on EB, who's going to try to do this good mm. guy approach? It is such hypocrisy. Okay. So, wow. Speaking to Harry Lally, former NDP MLA. He's a former NDP cabinet minister and previous NDP government. Not happy with the way Anjali Apaderai was treated here and disqualified by the party. Hey, Harry, let me play a clip here for you. This is an exchange between... Me and David Eby on an earlier show, and we're talking here about the Angelia Potteri campaign. And I just asked him straight up, you know, does he think she should be allowed to run against him? Let her name appear on the ballot. And here's what he had to say to me. I had to try and pin him down a little bit. Have a listen to this exchange, and I'll get your thoughts. This is me and Eby. Do you think her name should be on the ballot, and people, the members of your party, should be allowed to vote for her if they want? She should not hey, be disqualified. I'm- yeah, I'm really excited about the leadership race. It gives me a chance to talk about ideas like this housing plan. Okay, well, what about my question though? Do you think her name should be on the ballot? You have you have oh, no fear yeah, going yeah, against I, her, right? I mean, I think we should. I think we should have a, a leadership race. I think there's a benefit to to taking stock where we're at, to looking at new ideas, and uh, and I feel good about where my campaign is at, and I look forward to the debate. Right, and she should not be disqualified by the party. Well, that would make it hard to have the race, Mike. I understand she's okay. uh, possibly the only other candidate. Okay, so he basically said to me there that he thought she should be allowed to run. But Harry, his own campaign behind the scenes was working against her and and basically encouraging the party to disqualify her behind the scenes, despite what he told me there. What do you think of that? Well, I think what's happened is the party brass, who has all the information, saw that she signed up uh, thousands of members. And now it's a real race and a real threat that she could possibly even win. I don't know if that would happen, but there's a possibility of that happening which would have been a big problem for the old guard because then they would lose their powered position, their, their, their privileged position. And what you've seen is, you know, on the one side of the end, he says, we got this equity policy. We want First Nations. We want people who are visible minorities. We want young people. So you have this young woman, intelligent, photogenic, who's energetic, bringing in lots of enthusiastic members into the party, and then the NDP turns around and says, no, we're going to stick with 
the, the, you know, uh, the passing over the torch from an older white man to another older white man, and the heck with somebody else who was actually uh, coming in from the equity side. So this whole equity policy of the NDP is nothing but a fraud, and I have never supported it, as you know, from the beginning. And not right now, you're seeing that they apply it when they want it. Nathan Cullen comes into mind, and good on him for sticking it out, by the way. But when they want to not apply it against somebody like in uh, uh, Columbia River Revelstoke, and then the guy comes out and says, well, actually, I'm bisexual. And then it's okay they're trying to say it. So what it tells you is the NDP's equity policy is nothing but a sham. They apply it when it serves their self-interest. And Speaking it's the old that, guard that pulls the strings at, uh, at the back end. Speaking of former NDP MLA Harry Lally, uh, not pulling, pulling any punches here against his old party, the party brass here. Hey, Harry, like you mentioned something earlier interesting in our, in our conversation about, about EB's campaign. Now, a Potter eye got in trouble because she was accused of coordinating with an outside, with an outside group, an outside environmental group, uh, Dogwood BC. But like you pointed out that, the steel workers union had it looked like it had been working for EB, right? So do you think it's you think he was also breaking the rules? Well, look, if you're going to judge one person by a set of rules, then judge the other person by the same set of rules. Did the party, did Elizabeth call, or is she going to, is the party going to now go out and investigate what happened between the USW and, and EB's campaign? And all fair play says that should happen. And if it doesn't happen then, you know, the, the, you can't call the NDP a Democratic Party anymore. It's the non-Democratic Party. That's All the right. only way I can look at it. Harry, thank you for coming on with your thoughts today. Okay, thanks.